Hear the word of the Lord from John chapter 8, verses 12 through 30. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I come from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says where, where I am going, you cannot come? He said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge. But he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world that I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And... As he was saying these things, many believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. It is so good to be back with you this morning in our own building. Oh, man, it's hardly sunk in for me. Uh, my name is Justin, if you don't know me, and I'm the lead pastor here at the church. And yes, I have a black eye. Listen, I did not know ministry on these mean streets of Bettendorf was going to be so rough, okay? <laughs> Actually, what happened was last week I forgot Alex Tate's name and Brigitte punched me at the door, okay? <laughs> so that's what actually happened. That didn't happen, but I did forget one of my staff members' names, Alex Tate, last week, and I repent in dust and ashes today. So Alex has put in a ton of work on this building. I deserve to be punched for miss missing his name last week. <clears throat> I'm sorry, Brigitte. There we go. Just joking. Actually, what happened, it's a fairly common thing for me to have a black eye, okay? I've wrestled my whole life, and I'm currently a brown belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, which is basically wrestling with submissions for anybody who cares. So this week, I got a rough welcome back to the mats, okay, uh, by a few of my friends, and I took a knee to the cheek, which uh, was a great look for the first wedding we had last night in our new building, which is not the first wedding that I've had a black eye for, okay? My wife reminds me of this, uh, but I continue, okay? We got to marry up Ethan and Keely 
Eaton last night. It has been a great weekend already. <clears throat> but a lot of us are exhausted today because first service last week, then we got to figure out the wedding. First service, or, you know, first wedding last night. Uh, and so, and back here this morning, trying to get everything put back together. It's been an exhausting, but an exhilarating week. Last week, as soon as, man, as soon as we started singing last week, you should have saw the, I don't know if you recognize the look on the faces of the, of the worship leaders, but at that moment, they were like, oh, oh, this is different. And we didn't know, but this building, the, the, the stage in the theater at the junior theater was built for performing. It was, the sound was meant to go out. And so you couldn't really hear the voices singing very well. This building is made for worship. It's made for all of us to sing together. And we were not, we had done sound check on Friday night and it was an empty building. We weren't expecting as soon as we started singing to hear our voices like we did. And man, my kids and everybody this week were like, I can't wait to come back on Sunday to worship God. So we are, we're just thrilled with what God has given us and the gift of this building. So um, but now it's time for us to turn our attention to the Word of God. I have a lot of work to do this morning, so let me pray for us and we can dig in. Father God, we do thank you once again for the gift of this building. We thank you for the opportunity as your people to be called in by your Holy Spirit to gather as a covenantal communion, a covenantal community to, to worship the God, to be forgiven of our sins, to be reminded of the sacrifice of Jesus, to hear the word of God, instruct us in the way that we should live our life. And uh, Father God, to partake of the Lord's Supper. So we, we, it's just a gift for us to do this this morning. I pray, as I'm tired and a little worn out, I pray that you would think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords, that it would be all of you and none of me. God, um, when I'm weak in the flesh, I trust that the spirit would be strong. So I pray that your word would be a light uh, to us this morning, that you would direct us, that your sheep would hear your voice, that many would be called out of darkness and into your marvelous light. God, I want to pray for Isla. I want to pray that you continue to strengthen her body, that you continue to bring healing. We thank you for the faith that you've given her and her family. We thank you for the ways that she's continuing to, to fight and push back. And God, we just ask that you would heal her heart, that you would heal her body from the top of her head to the soles of her feet. And we want to worship you and thank you for the work that you have done, the work that you are doing, and that you work, the work you are going to continue to do. We pray all this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so open up your Bibles with me to John chapter 8 and verse 12. And we're going to do something a little bit different today. We're going to begin in verse 12, and then I'm going to take a little bit of a biblical survey. We're going to go, in one sense, from Genesis to Revelation, talking about one specific aspect that Jesus brings to the forefront here. Verse 12, again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, here goes Jesus again, making bold claims that will eventually get him killed. Now, it's hard to underestimate the importance of what Jesus is saying here. This is the second of Jesus' seven famous I am statements from the book of John. Now I want you to remember in the book of Exodus when God showed up in the burning bush to Moses and Moses asked, who are you? Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am who I am. In other words, basically, I am the meaning of life. I am behind everything. I am who I am. 
Well, Jesus is playing off of that revelation of God here when he's making these I am statements. He's revealing himself as the son of God. He isn't just a man. He isn't just a miracle worker. He is the divine son of God who has come in the flesh. Now, let me state the obvious. This is no reasonable or moderate claim. All right? Scholar and commentator Edward Klink says of this statement that it is a political statement with cosmic ramifications. Now, why does he say that? Because when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, the, 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 the Greek word for world there is cosmos. Jesus is saying, I am the light of the cosmos. Now, for us to understand the importance of Jesus' claim here to be the light of the cosmos, what we need to do is we need to study the scriptures to see how the scriptures speak of light. Now, light for us is a simple, it's a pretty simple you know, concept. Most of us don't even think about it, right? You woke up this morning and you flipped a switch and psh, there it came, right? You turned the key in your car or you pushed the button and psh, on it came. And most of you didn't think about light at all. In fact, most of you woke up and there was a big ball of gas in the sky. And you probably didn't even think about that, right? But it's important for us, if we're going to understand what Jesus is saying when he says, I am the light of the world, to go back through the scriptures and see how God reveals light to us. I want you to remember in the first chapter of the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 1, we know in verse 1, in the beginning, God, right? God existed before anything. And in verse 3 and 4, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. So in the beginning, we have God speaking light into existence. Then if you follow through the book of Genesis and then into the book of Exodus, if you remember what happens in Exodus, God's people end up in slavery in Egypt. And they're in slavery for 400 years. And then God raises up Moses to deliver them out of slavery. And one of the things that God does as he's leading them out of slavery, leads them into the desert. And one of the ways that God leads his people is this is how it says in Exodus 13, 21. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud, leading them along the way. And by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. So in order to lead the people out of slavery through the desert at night, God became to them, God came down to them in a pillar of fire, and he led them. So light has this aspect that obviously it brings life to everything in the beginning. If there was no light, we would not have no plants and animals or anything else. And so that light brings life, but also that light brings direction. That light brings leadership, that we're meant to follow the light. In Exodus 25, when God is describing how he wants to be worshipped in his sanctuary, he tells them to make these really large lampstands out of pure gold and to light those babies up so that there's light in the sanctuary. So when you come in to worship God, it's not dark and creepy and mysterious, but it's actually well lit. See, the God who spoke light into existence, the God who leads his people through the night in the wilderness with the pillar of fire, wants his worship space to be full of light. Which is why when we came into this building and they had every single window 
They had insulation board over the windows, taped to block out all the light. They had black curtains on all the windows. They had yellow lights and all the lights and them dimmed way down. They had no lights in the foyer. One of the first things we came in here and it was like, what is going on in this place? Why is everything black? We want everything light. Why? Because our God is a God of light. He wants to be worshiped in the light. Now, why is that? Why is light such a big deal? Well, the scriptures reference light more than 260 times. Why? To put it as simply as I can, and to just totally rip off the words of Jesus in today's text, light is life. If there was no sun, there would be no life. Or if there was no light, there would be no living on this earth. When, you're, when we say, when your light goes out, you die. So darkness becomes a metaphor for death. Being darkness becomes a metaphor for being blind to God. Walking in spiritual blindness. Walking in spiritual darkness. It means literally that you're deaf, you're dumb to the things of God. That you're bumping around on this earth and you don't know what it's all for. What it's all about. You don't know who God is and how he made you in his image. Remember earlier in John when Jesus said that he was the light of the world and yet people hated him because they loved the darkness more than the light. Now why, why do people love the darkness? Because like Bane in The Dark Knight Rises, we were born in the darkness. Here's how it's, 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 Job speaks of this in the book of Job, chapter 24, verses 13 through 17. There are those who rebel against the light, who are not acquainted with its ways, and do not stay in its paths. The murderer rises before it is light. Most murders happen at night, right? That he may kill the poor and needy, and in the night he is like a thief, right? When thieves come, most of the time, thieves aren't ruffling through your car in the middle of the day, right? They're coming at night. Right? If they're going to steal your car, they're stealing your car at night. Right, Ashley? No, just, just, I'm just, you know, not, nothing, nothing, nothing. So, she's had her car stolen multiple times, so I had, I, so I had, I just, I had to drop that in there. The eye of the adulterer also waits for the twilight. Why? Sinners want to sin at night most of the time, right? Saying, no eye will see me, and he veils his face. In the dark, they dig through houses. By day, they shut themselves up. They do not know the light. For deep darkness is morning to all of them, for they are, they are friends with the terrors of deep darkness. So darkness is a metaphor for a life of sin, a life of lived away from the paths of God. A life that wants to separate itself from God, from beauty, from truth, and from goodness. And light is a metaphor for life. Now, light is also a metaphor for salvation. Psalm 18, 27 and 28 says it like this. For you save a humble people. But the haughty eyes you bring down. For it is you who light my lamp. 
Hear that? It is you who light my lamp, for the Lord my God lightens my darkness. Here's what the psalmist is saying. When a people humble themselves and say, you know what? I don't know which way I should go. I don't know which way is up. I don't know what this life is all about. I don't understand sin and death and darkness and eternal life. So I need someone from outside of me, God, to tell me what it's all about. When we take a humble posture before the Lord, the Lord lights our lamp. That's a metaphor for entering into our life and turning us on inside, right? Lighting the light of life in us. God turns the spiritual lights on in your heart. And so he gives you faith to believe in him. I remember what it was like when I was a teenager and I'd heard of Jesus and I knew a little bit about Jesus and I would say I was a Christian, but I lived my whole high school life away from Christ, right? I was worshiping the God of sports and, and girls at that time. And I remember when I was 17 years old and I went to a youth ministry and I heard the gospel and all of a sudden, psh, lights came on in my heart. The lights came on and what happened there was Jesus came into my heart and flipped the switch. He put the switch there. He knew how to power it on. He knew when to turn it on. And at that moment, when I was 17 years old, he changed my life forever. I believed in Jesus Christ for salvation, but then I also began to follow Jesus Christ with the rest of my life. Did I become a, a perfect man? By no means, right? But Jesus turned the spiritual light on in my heart. One of the things that happens when God turns those spiritual lights on in your heart and in your soul is he gives you faith to believe in him. And one of the things that happens when he gives us this faith and we turn from our sins and he forgives us from our sins and he leads us out of a life lived in darkness, listen to this, is he begins to put so many things so many scary things happen in the dark, right? I remember when I was a kid and I used to take the trash out at night. I heard some giggles, so y'all know what I'm talking about. I had to take the trash out at night and we had these tall bushes over there and I would like have to talk, I would, I would like talk tough to anybody that was over there. Like, I, I, I know, I'm out here, I'm fine. I ain't scared of you and I'm, run, and I'm like, I'm running over to this garbage can and throwing it in there. Why? Because I don't know what's going on over there. And if I was a bad guy, I'd probably be hiding over there, right? I don't know what's going on because it's, it's in the darkness. Now listen, here's the idea. A lot of scary things happen in the dark. But when Jesus turns the lights on, the scariest thing for a human being is what happens after death. That's a scary, if you're, if you're awake to any reality, that should be scary. Because in one instant, you will be gone off this planet. You could make the wrong turn out here and be T-boned and be gone forever. And what, what the scriptures tell us is it's God gives mankind, after death comes the judgment. That's it. We die once and then comes the judgment. And what happens in salvation is that God answers for us what's going to happen after death. That Jesus Christ destroys the powers of death, hell, and the grave for us. He gives us eternal life. And what this... The, the scariest enemy that we possibly have, death, now that he has been defanged, right? We, we say around here in the, in the words of the prophet, or not the prophet, the words of the poet George Herbert, Herbert, that death used to be an executioner, but God has turned him into a gardener. So when we die, we get planted in the ground, but one day we'll be raised up to new life. When death has become nothing more than a gardener, guess what? Nothing else can really scare you. When the scariest thing in life 
has been defanged, what else is there to, to, to make us afraid? So this is what happens. When we start walking in the light, God begins to put our fears to death. Psalm 27 verse 1. Listen, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Do you hear that? I'm walking in the light. What do I have to be afraid of? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? David is saying here that when he is walking in the light of God, he, the response to that is a courageous life. He has courage now. In Psalm 18, he says that he can run through a troop and leap over a wall. That's one of my favorite. David gets me, dude. David had ADHD like I do. <laughs> Right? I could, he gets so excited about God and what God's doing. I could run through a troop and lean over a wall. He doesn't say, oh, I could sing some great songs to Jesus. I could really read my Bible. He does do those things, but he's also like, give me it. Let's go. That's the response of David. I love it. Why? Because when he's walking in the light, when death has been defeated and defanged, his confidence in the Lord is sky high. The light of God is to give us courage. If God be for us, who can be against us? But the converse of that is also true. If you are consistently walking in the darkness, you are going to lack confidence. You are going to be less likely to do great things for God or even attempt to do small things for God. Why? For at least two reasons. First, very few good things grow in the dark. Your relationship with God grows in the light. Your new life in Christ grows in the light. Your spiritual gifts grow in the light. Your confidence grows in the light. The good things that God's doing in you grows in the light. If you're walking in darkness... You're not going to be experiencing that type of life and that type of growth. Secondly, think just how hard it is to actually walk or run or do anything productive or anything confidently in the dark. Right? Think about, those of you, you've been to a haunted house. How do you walk through a haunted house? Right? You bury your head in the person in front of you and whoever's in front, they've got to act like they're tough. Right? Why? Because you know in the pitch black, you can bump into anything. Have you ever jumped up out of bed and tried to do something quickly in the dark? Right? And nearly lost a toe. Right? Or stepped on a Lego. A Lego can make a coward out of a man in the, a man in the middle of the night. Uh-huh. That's a metaphor for life here. Those who don't have Jesus as the light of God in their life, that's how they walk around in life. They're just bumping around in the darkness. They don't know what confidently to do. They don't know who to marry. They don't know where to live. They don't know what to do with their life. They don't know what they're for. They're just trying to figure everything out. Bumping around in the dark, getting wounded, hurting others, making mistake after mistake after mistake. Why? Because they don't know God. They don't know who they are or what they were created for. They don't understand where to find life and where to find light and love and meaning and salvation. It's incredibly sad, really. We have a whole culture full of people like that today, just bumping around 
asking stupid questions. Just what is a woman? (laughs) Jesus, turn the lights on. (laughs) Psalm 36 verse 9 says this, For with you, God, is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. In other words, the light of God doesn't just light us up internally so that we can see him, the fountain of life. He does that. All of a sudden you see Jesus as new and he is my meaning in life. He is everything to me. I can find life and salvation and peace and happiness and purpose and meaning in Jesus. He's the fountain of life. I do see that, but because Jesus brings the light into my life, now I can see everything else through that light. I see the whole world differently now. The whole world takes on beauty and significance and meaning. Psalm 43 verse 3 says, Send out your light and your truth. Your light and your truth. Light is a metaphor for truth here. He says, Lead me. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. That the light of God is meant to lead us somewhere. To God's dwelling. To this house of worship this morning. Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. How am I supposed to know which way to go? Well, he gave us a book. He gave us a book and it's a lamp and it's a light. It's a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. He tells us, now many people think this is just a big, you know, big book of rules. It's not a big book of rules. It's telling us how to find the fountain of life. It's telling us how to find meaning and purpose and what a flourishing life lived in relationship with God looks like. Psalm 119, 130. The unfolding of your words give light. It imparts understanding to the simple. One of my purposes in preaching is to unfold God's words so that they bring light to more people. Right? That's what we're doing this morning. That's why we focus on the word of God so much. We want the word of God to turn on in your mind and in your heart. So, all through the Old Testament, okay, the first half of the book of the Bible, light or light is a metaphor for a lot of things. Hear this. Light is a metaphor for life, for salvation, for spiritual life, for faith, for confidence and courage, for truth, for God's will and guidance, for understanding, for wisdom. So when Jesus steps up and says, I am the light of the world, that, that meaning or that word has all of that Old Testament meaning packed into it. Light is everything good. Everything living and flourishing and growing in goodness and wisdom. When he says, I am the light of the cosmos, he's saying, you can't have a meaningful life without knowing me. You can't have a good life without walking in my light. That's what Jesus is saying. That is why it has political ramifications. That is why it has cosmic ramifications. He's saying this, Every other world religious leader is lying to you. I am the only one that offers you life. This is why he gets him killed. Listen, when you look out at the world and you see all of the brokenness, all of the rebellion, all of the foolishness, all of the hurt and pain, all of the issues in every single culture on every continent, and you ask, what is wrong with the world? Why is it this way? The scriptures make it very clear. 
People are born in darkness and they need the light of God. So what begins to happen towards the end of the Old Testament in the book of the prophet Isaiah is God starts promising to send a light bringer. God starts promising to send a light that will bring people out of their spiritual darkness and into the light. This says it like this in Isaiah chapter 9 verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. So listen, hear this. God's not looking at people that are in darkness and going, I can't believe they're in the darkness. Why don't they light a light? Turn on a light, people, right? Bring some spiritual light to yourselves, people. That's not what God does. God looks at people in darkness and he promises to send a light bringer to them. Here's how he says it in Isaiah 49, verse 6. He's going to send, quote, a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to, to the ends of the earth. Now, here we have Jesus in John chapter 8 in the temple. He's standing in the temple. More than likely, he says he's in the treasury. So more than likely, he's standing right in front of those large lampstands that were commanded to be lit and he's saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, what are you supposed to do with that? All of these Old Testament Jews knew how significant light was. They knew what light was a metaphor. And Jesus is effectively saying, I am the one that makes the world go around. I am the one that will, I am the truth bringer. I am the, the beauty of God. I am the light of the world. I have all life and goodness in my hand. I am everything you're looking for. I'll tell you what you don't do. You don't go, well, that, well, that was a nice sermon. If I got up here and, and, and said that same sermon to you, listen, here, here's, I had a dream last night and I am your meaning of life. If you want to find meaning, you need to know me, right? We're like, Ugh. immediately you're like, you're a crazy person. <laughs> That's the audacious claim that Jesus is making here. He's claiming to be the logos, the thing that holds the universe together. I am the meaning of life. I am the light of the world. Nothing in the universe would turn on if I didn't speak my voice. Oh, What are you supposed to do with that? What are you supposed to do with that? Well, this chapter tells us two things you're supposed to do with that. Number one, you're supposed to believe it because it's true. And the second thing you're supposed to do is follow him. Walk in the light. We're gonna look at those in a little bit of detail here. And we're gonna, after we go through this chapter, we're gonna look at that, those two things in the life of a man named Saul of Tarsus. How he believed and how he, how he stepped into the light and lived his life following Jesus. Let's look at verse 13. Back to our text in John. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. So we, we talked last week, Jesus and the Old Testament talks about if, if you're declaring something, if you're a witness in a trial, you need at least two to three witnesses. So they're pulling that scripture up and they're saying, when Jesus says, you're the light of the world, Jesus, they're, they're looking at Jesus and saying, you can't just say that about yourself, right? You can't just say that about yourself. And look what, how Jesus responds. Verse 14. 
Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. Jesus is like this. Okay, normally you need two to three witnesses, but the light needs no witnesses. <laughs> like, I am the light. The light is his own witness, okay? And you don't know where I came from. Now, they're going to get confused here. What Jesus is talking about is Jesus came, comes from heaven. Jesus was one with God. He's part, he is part of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They live together as one God forever in eternity past. And Jesus, the second member of the Trinity, stepped out of heaven and entered into the virgin's womb, Mary, and became a man like us so that he could save us from our sins. So he's like, you don't know where I came from and you don't know where I'm going. In other words, I'm going to go back to the Father to be with him in heaven. And these people, whoosh, goes right over their head. Jesus says in verse 15, you judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I am the Father who sent me. Of course, he's speaking of God the Father here, but they don't understand it. Verse 17, in your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. Remember, when he was baptized, the Father said, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. Verse 17. No, I'm sorry, verse 19. They, they said to him, therefore, where is your Father? By the way, this is a slur. This is a slur. They knew that Jesus was born of a, well, they didn't know he was born of a virgin, but they knew his mother was pregnant while she was engaged to Joseph. And so word around town, like surprisingly, the word wasn't, oh, did you know Mary immaculately, con immaculately conceived the Holy Spirit? No, it was like Mary's been sleeping around, I'm pretty sure. Pretty sure she's been sleeping around. Joseph was so convicted by this, he was going to divorce her, he, which you could do back then when you were in betrothed. But then an angel showed up to him and said, don't divorce her. It's actually true. The Holy Spirit has impregnated your wife. Okay? Joseph's like, that's a first. <laughs> but this large angel of light convinced him, okay? This light bringer shows up and convinces him, so he stays worth it. But the community didn't get this experience. So the community, you know, it's full of whispers. Who's, who's Jesus' daddy? He kind of looks like that, that guy over there, doesn't he? You see how he walks? He walks like that guy. Do you see that mailman? Mailman walks the same way, right? <laughs> There's all these rumors out there. So when they say, who's your, listen, literally they're saying, who's your daddy? Oh yeah, Jesus, who's your daddy? They're insinuating that he was born or conceived in sin. They have no idea who his daddy is. Oh. I get excited about that. All right. Verse 19, where is your father? Jesus answered, you neither knew, you know neither me nor my father. He's talking about his father in heaven. If you knew me, you would know my father also. In other words, remember, the father draws people to Jesus and you've got to come through Jesus to know the father. If you knew the father, you're going to know the son. So he said to them again, no, these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Verse 21, so he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Anybody ever seen that one on a coffee cup? 
that's the kind of words that'll get you a black eye. Jesus, if you knew me, you'd know my father also. Mm. He says, I'm going away and you'll seek me and you will die in your sins. Where I am going, you, not, you cannot come. In other words, I'm going to the father. I'm going to heaven. So the Jews said, Again, they missed the point. Will he kill himself since he says, where I am going, you cannot come? He said to them, you are from below, I am from above. In other words, you are sitting in darkness, you are living in darkness, I'm from above, I am from heaven, I bring light, but you don't get me. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. In other words, unless you believe that I am the son of the living God, I am not like any other prophet. I am not like any other world religion, religious leader. I am not like anyone else that's ever walked the face of the earth. I am the son of the living God. And if you don't believe that, you will die in your sins and go to hell and be separated from God. That's the words of Christ. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, Jesus, sigh. Just what I've been telling you from the beginning. Let me repeat myself for the people in the back. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, the Father. And I declare to the world what I have heard from him. We bump around in this world. Oh, I want to know what life is about. I want to know what morality is. I want to know what a good life is. I want to know what marriage is. I want to know what a man is. I want to know what a woman is. And God sends his son to tell us, answer all of those questions for us. And we're like, but who are you to tell me anything? The light of the cosmos. The one who lit the match on the universe. You get excited. How do you not? How do you not get excited about it? Jesus says here, just what I've been telling you from the beginning, I have much to say and much to judge, but he who sent me is true and I declare to the world what I've heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, here it is. In other words, Jesus has this internal dialogue, I, I would say. It's like, he knows all things, but when are these people going to get it? When are these people really going to understand who I am? Guys, listen, this is kind of a spectacular verse. Jesus tells us exactly when people are going to quote unquote get it. And it's right here. Verse 28, so Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the son of man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the father taught me. Here's what Jesus is saying. Some of you won't ever get it until I get lifted up on the cross. And then when I get lifted up on the cross, then you will finally know that I am truly the son of God. Isn't that interesting? One of the things that happened, one of the things that is recorded for us in the scriptures is that as soon as Jesus died on the cross, there was a full eclipse of the sun. 
Think about that. When the light of the world was snuffed out, the sun bowed its head. See, when the light of the world, in the darkest moment in human history, when we, the people who act like, oh, we're all cool with God, I'm so spiritual, I'm so cool, I just want, I think there's probably lots of ways to God, I'm real open to religion. When God put on flesh and came to us, we received him by killing him. That's how open to God we are. We were walking in darkness and we chose to kill the son of God. And it was the darkest moment in human history when the light of the world was snuffed out. And Jesus says, on this moment, when I get lifted up on the cross, then you will finally believe in me. What happens there? We sang about it this morning. Jesus goes to a tomb and he's there for roughly three days and then he gets up on that Sunday morning and he rises from the dead and he's witnessed by over 500 people. And Jesus proved he was who he said he was. We talked about it last week that Jesus' brothers went from unbelievers to believers because they met their resurrected brother. But there's one guy that we need to talk about. And his name is Saul of Tarsus. And Saul of Tarsus was something special. He was a bit of a genius. He was one of the most educated person in his day and age. He was a Jew. He was aspiring to be a leader in the Jewish synagogue. So hear this. He had religious aspirations. He had political aspirations. He was on the up. He was one of the young up and coming men in the Jewish world. And he hated Jesus. He rejected Jesus. He did not believe in Jesus. He was glad that Jesus was crucified. And then he even went to the Jewish authorities and asked for papers that gave him legal authority to have Christians thrown in jail. All right? He has Stephen. He has all kinds of Christians thrown in jail. And then he has Stephen thrown before the people. And he's holding the, the cloaks of the people who condemn Stephen. And Stephen becomes the first martyr the first Christian martyr, and they stone Stephen. They kill him. They stone him to death, and Paul is there applauding. Why? This is another thing for him to put on his resume. Look how serious of a Jew I am. Look how serious about the law of God. Jesus is a, he's a false prophet, and, we should, and then he goes, and he's on his way to Damascus to go and imprison more Christians. He's literally riding on a horse, and do you know what happens? Here's how it is described. Acts chapter 9, verse 3. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. Well, isn't that convenient? Jesus is the what? Light of the world. So when he shows up to his most hated opponent, right? The guy that hates him the most. Jesus shows up as a big old ball of light. And look what happens. And falling to the ground, I, he heard a voice saying to me, saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Here's the idea. Saul is living his life in darkness, Jesus shows up and turns the light bulb on. This has got to be the most embarrassing moment in the life of Saul, right? Boom, light comes on, God shows up. 
Who are you? Jesus. What? Jesus? And Jesus just doesn't miss a beat. He's a beat. He's like, all right, go to this town. I'll tell you what to do. There was no like, Saul, would you invite me into your heart? <laughs> Saul, I'm just knocking on the door of your heart. Would you please let me in? There is none of this. There is none. He's like, Saul, who are you? Jesus, go to town. I'll tell you what to do. That's what Saul does. Light breaks through Saul's darkness. This is where Saul is converted. This is where Saul puts his faith in Jesus Christ. He believes he's transferred from the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. He is born again. So that's the first thing anyone must do if they turn to Christ. When Jesus turns that light on in your heart, you must believe that he is the son of God. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But here it is. But then after you believe in Jesus, we need to hear this. After you believe in Jesus, there's more for you to do. He doesn't say, just Saul, believe in me and go back to whatever you want to do. Believe in me, go to town, I'll tell you what to do. In other words, after you believe in Jesus, you must follow Jesus. After the light turns on, you must walk in the light. Jesus says that we must no longer walk in darkness. Now this means at least three things. Number one, the whole direction of your life should change. When you're walking in darkness, you're following your own ways. You're, you're doing what you want to do. You're going where you want to go. You spend your money how you want to spend your money. Your relationship is defined how you want to, rela- how you want to define it, right? You want to make the most comfortable life possible. All these different things. When you are walking in the darkness, you are your own God, and you get to determine what you do with your own things. When the light bulb turn, turns on and you realize, oh, man, I'm living in God's world, actually, and, I, and God has saved me from my sins, and now all to him I owe. God changes the direction of our life. He leads us. Before we were following our own ways, now we follow his ways. He tells us what to do. He tells us how to live. Secondly, when the light bulb comes on and you start walking in the light, the companions that we walk with should change. Bad company corrupts good morals. You hang with the wrong type of people, you become the wrong type of people. You walk in the darkness, you, have a com- you will have companions of people who walk in the darkness. Right? You're a fool, you gather fools. That's what happens. So when we get brought into the light, we start wanting to walk with people who are living in the light. 2 Corinthians 6, 14 says this, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness? In other words, you can't hold hands with somebody in the dark. You can't be in that type of intimate relationship with them. Can you be on mission towards them? Absolutely. But you've got to be careful because they're also on mission to you. They want to pull you into the darkness just as much as you want to pull them into the light. Number three, our lifestyle should change. 
Ephesians 5.8, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Philippians 2.15, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked, crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. How are you supposed to walk now? That's what being on mission is all about, is you actually let your light shine. You walk out in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, and you let your light shine, and you're not ashamed of it. That you live for Christ, that you live differently. Jesus told Saul, rise and enter that city, and I will tell you what you must do. In other words, I've saved you. I've drafted you off of Satan's team and off of the kingdom of darkness and I've brought you into mine, the kingdom of light, but now you have a mission. Now you have a purpose. Now you have a job to do. And that mission is going to change your life. It's going to change the way you live. Here's how Saul describes it in Acts chapter 24. This is what he says Jesus said to him. But rise and stand upon your feet. For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the Gentiles, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. In other words, God turned the spiritual lights on in Saul in order for Saul to share that light with others. Can you imagine, this is documented history that Saul of Tarsus was an enemy of Jesus Christ and was converted. What can make a man switch teams like that? A well-educated man. What can make a man go back on everything he originally believed, right? How are you going to convince this guy to change teams? The scriptures tell us the resurrected Christ convinced him. That's what convinced him. And then what did Saul do with his life? Hear this. Saul goes on and writes two-thirds of the New Testament. Saul lives the majority of his life, in, the rest of his life, in prison. Saul is beaten multiple times. Saul is on mission, going to, sailing to different islands to share the gospel. He is shipwrecked multiple times. He is snake-bitten. He goes without food. He goes without drink. He is under threat of death all the time. Why was he doing this? Right? Saul was not a car salesman that was really stoked about the commission he was going to receive. Saul's life had been turned upside down by the light of the cosmos. So he wanted to go to the end of the cosmos telling people about the light. And he was willing to do anything to make it happen. The apostles of Jesus, how did they die? Many of them were crucified. Some of them were crucified upside down. Some of them were boiled alive. Why? To spread a lie around the world? To start a new religion? Right? No, because they saw the resurrected son of God. Stepping into the light changed the rest of their life. Have you stepped into the light? Have you met the light of life? I'm not talking about the Jesus of your Sunday school days. I'm not talking about a precious moments Jesus. I'm talking about the light of the cosmos. Has he shown in your heart? And are you walking in the light of life today? See, when God turns the spiritual lights on for any of us, he gives us all a mission like Saul. 
First Peter 2.9 says this, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? Listen, that you may proclaim his excellencies who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. In other words, and I love this because the people I know who know the darkness, the people I know who've spent years in the darkness, the people I know who can smell the darkness, they can taste the darkness, they know how dark it was and what God saved them from. Those people make the best missionaries because they step into the light and they tell everybody about the glorious excellencies of the light. That Jesus Christ went into my darkest. He's went into drug-induced comas. He's went into alcoholic frenzies. He went into orgies. He's went into the worst places on this planet and he's pulled people out of the darkness. That's the type of Jesus we serve. And when he brings you into the light, what are you supposed to do? <sighs> Where are we going to lunch? No. We're to proclaim the excellencies of the light. That's what we're here for. Now, if you want to know the light of the world this morning, I pray that you would put your faith in Jesus and you would make the decision to step into the light and follow him with us today. And for those of us who have already put our faith in Jesus, we get to follow Jesus today by partaking in the Lord's Supper. Now listen, um, sometimes we, many of us come from all different fake faith backgrounds or all different church denominations and we don't understand what's actually going on in the Lord's Supper. I'm going to give you four different positions really quick here on the Lord's Supper and tell you what we believe. About the 16th century, the Catholic Church came out with something called the doctrine of transubstantiation. Trans, it can turn. Substance, a substance can turn. And what they began, they began teaching is that the body or the, the, the bread and the wine actually change substances and become the physical body of Christ. We do not believe that. Lutherans believe in something called consubstantiation, that the, the presence of Christ is within and under the bread, of, uh, uh, the bread and the wine in some uh, mysterious way. Martin, or I mean, John Calvin believed that Jesus Christ was spiritually present, really spiritually present in the elements themselves so that when we eat them and we drink them, something actually happens to us. Another guy named Ulrich Zwingli, he believed that the elements were just a memory, just a memorial, just a celebration, that there's nothing actually happening in this. Many of you grew up in churches that, were, that shared one of those beliefs about the Lord's Supper. Many of you that come from like a Baptist background or a non-denominational background, and you rarely celebrate the Lord's Supper, it's because they just believed it was a memorial, that nothing actually was happening. I'm going to tell you, we are Calvinists here at this church. We are reformed in our understanding. We believe that Jesus Christ is spiritually present here doing something we don't understand. It doesn't become the physical body of Christ in some kind of, you know, transubstantiation way. But Christ is here ministering to us. That's why we celebrate it every single week. That's why the Apostle Paul says it's important that when you eat the Lord's Supper... That you eat it in the right attitude, with the right disposition. 
that you search your heart, you repent of your sin, that you don't take it lightly. If it was just a memorial, it wouldn't really matter. But it's not just a memorial. Paul goes on and says, if you've taken the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, some of you have eaten it and you've gotten sick and died because of it. Do you hear that? That's what Paul says. Some of you have taken the Lord's Supper in a wrong way and you've eaten it and gotten sick or even died because of it. You're eating judgment upon yourself. And so what we do, this is why we, we kind of, what's, what's called, we guard the table. We say, do not come unless you are a believer in Jesus Christ and you're repentant of your sin. So I, I share that with you because as we open the Lord's table, listen, it's meant to be a reflective time. Right, kids? It's not a time to start talking. It's meant to reflect on where you are at with the Lord. Thank God for the gospel. Thank God for Jesus' blood. Thank God that Jesus Christ is inviting us in to eat and sup with him, and he's giving us something special right here in the meal, all right? So we did this last week. We're gonna do it one more time. These two groups, you're gonna come down this way, and you're gonna go out. There's a lot more people here than there are here. So when these guys come through, we can make two lines over here and start going through to get us through in time. Same thing with right here. You guys are gonna come in, and you're gonna go out right there, all right? Now, we know we have some, uh, some folks that have um, gluten allergies and, and stuff in the building, and so what we have done beforehand, we have bro broken the gluten-free crackers and we've placed them into a cup. And so those who have the bread, we don't wanna cross-contaminate, so we'll just pick up the cup and you can choose your cracker yourself so we don't cross-contaminate with, with the bread. All right, let me pray for us and then we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper together this morning. Father of mercies, thank you for the gift of bre this bread, which we confess provides us with the body of your son, Jesus Christ. We ask you to enable us to eat of it in faith and to be made more fully members of his heavenly body through Christ our Lord. Father of mercies, thank you for this gift of wine which we confess provides us with the blood of your son, our savior. We ask you to enable us to drink of it in faith and to be conformed more and more to the image of his death through Christ our Lord. In Jesus' name I pray, amen and amen.